Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen, and I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about a very sensitive topic.、Um, we've gotten some requests from listeners to cover this before, and、uh, also wanted to offer a trigger warning just at the top of the podcast、um, because it is a sensitive topic. It, we're not going to get graphic or gruesome, but we are going to be talking about non-suicidal self-injurious behavior, and that's often better known as cutting. Or self-injury, self-harm, self-mutilation, parasuicide.、Mm-hmm. So, it is one of the tougher topics to cover, but it's something that isn't talked about that much, but is happening a lot, especially among adolescent populations. So, we definitely felt like it was worth、um, maybe having a potentially uncomfortable conversation about a very real issue. Yeah, I was really taken by the fact,、uh, as Kristen and I were doing research for this episode. I mean, every almost every study you come across about this is dealing with the age factor.、Um, that it is so common among young people, especially young people who are just hitting puberty, but it does have the very real potential to carry over into、uh, young adulthood and then adulthood. Yeah, and there are also questions out there of whether or not、um, self injury and self mutilation is becoming more prevalent. Among younger populations, which we will get to as well. But first off,、uh, let's just go ahead and, and offer a definition of what we were talking about. This is coming from the Virginia Commission on Youth, and they define non-suicidal self-injurious behavior as deliberate, indirect destruction or alteration of body tissue without conscious suicidal intent, but resulting in injury severe enough for tissue damage to occur. And that is、uh, an important. Delineation to make. These are not suicide attempts. A lot of times, it's the opposite of a suicide attempt. You're hurting yourself to feel better.、Mm-hmm. Um, and the types of behaviors involved,、um, and this is coming from the Mayo Clinic, might include severe scratching, cutting, burning,、uh, intentionally poisoning yourself, carving words or symbols onto your skin, breaking bones, hitting yourself, punching yourself, piercing the skin with sharp objects. Head banging, biting, pulling out your hair,、um, interfering with wound healing.、Um, also, one thing that is not considered self harm behavior: tattooing. Right.、Um, yeah, things like piercing and tattooing are not necessarily、uh, self harm behaviors unless you are doing them for the sake of the pain that comes with them. Right. Um, and the Mayo Clinic also points out that it's this is typically a way to cope with emotional pain. Kristen pointed out that a lot of people are doing it to feel better in a way. It just happens that it's a, a definite unhealthy way to cope with any intense anger or frustration you're feeling. It's as one site pointed out, an external way to express internal feelings. So who is? Practicing this, who is intentionally engaging in this kind of self-harm?、Um, the Virginia Commission on Youth again、um, says that NSIB, which is the the self-injury behavior, occurs without regard for age, gender, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. But 
As we have mentioned already, uh, younger populations are especially at risk, and especially younger girls. Mm-hmm. Some of the risk factors, a lot of it has to do with age. Most of those who self-injure are teens. Other risk factors are life issues or substance abuse. So if you have this uh, this toxic combination of a of a troubled teen who's dealing with life issues, maybe this teen was abused or neglected. Maybe they are uh, self-injuring under the influence. That is someone that would definitely need professional help. Right. Um, so just to put some numbers around this, uh, according to a November 2011 study published in The Lancet, and this was reported on by ABC News, one in 12 teens engages in self-harm or self-mutilation. Um, and community samples have found a range of prevalence rates. It can be hard to uh, to sort of extrapolate one community sample across the entire population. Uh, but it ranges between 4 and as high as 38%. And, and that's coming from the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injurious Behavior, uh, which was uh, something that we'll be citing often throughout this podcast. Um, and even further, studies among high school populations in the U.S. and Canada specifically, will typically find the range between 13 and 24 percent, which is a very large population, to state the obvious. And it it does, yeah, it does depend on age, uh, and it also depends on self-reporting, because if people aren't coming forward with their injuries or their mental and emotional issues, how are you supposed to find these kids? There were some studies that were done at schools, so that's a more general, broad population to sample from. Um, Dr. Moran, who who did this study, uh, said that the window of vulnerability for this experience of self-harm appears to open at around puberty, and the writer of the article calls it a perfect storm of surging hormones, immature brains, and unfamiliar emotions. So these are kids who are having a lot of trouble dealing with their own emotions and expressing them to people around them. Yeah, the the window that this usually will start is between 12 and 15 years old, but an early onset around the age of 7 is not that uncommon either. And we talked about girls being at higher risk of this as well. Um, that study from The Lancet, again, uh, followed kids for 15 years, starting at ages 14 and 15. And at every stage, when the researchers would go back and check in more girls reported self-harm than boys. And then again, uh, in June 2011, there was a study published in the journal Pediatrics, which found that ninth grade girls in that 14, 15 year old range, ninth grade girls were three times more likely to be engaging in self-harm compared to ninth grade boys. And to get a picture, uh, that Lancet study describes that uh, teens at particular risk are, quote, on a fast track to adulthood. Those kids who are at the margins of school, who are engaged in early sexual activities, who are using alcohol and drugs at a young age. And there are also familial risk factors involved. And researchers are wondering whether there is a genetic component to this because uh, they found that relatives of individuals who have engaged in self-mutilation are three times more likely to engage in the same behavior. And so they're wondering if there's something in the genes uh, prompting this impulsive, depressive behavior. Um, And it's also been linked to things like family violence, family Mm -hmm. alcohol abuse, childhood separation and loss, physical abuse, and childhood sexual abuse. Right, yeah, there's a link. This is a 2008 Journal of Consulting Clinical Psychology study that pointed out a link between childhood sexual abuse and self-harm, 
But a 2008 analysis in the British Journal of Psychology found the link between the two to be pretty weak and could have more to do with the two being correlated with the same psychiatric risk factors. Right. More broadly, it's um, like you've touched on before, uh, issues with not being able to to process and express emotions. Um, for instance, there is a very strong correlation, 80%, with borderline personality disorder. And a lot of times the therapy that's involved um, with self-harm is teaching um, people how to how to deal in a healthy way with negative and depressive emotions. Right. And, you know, Kristen touched on that uh, genetic link, and it isn't proven. It is something that they are looking into because of just the way these conditions develop. Um, patients diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder often grow up in environments where emotional expression goes unrecognized or is punished. So like I said earlier, you know, kids who are having trouble expressing their emotions and dealing with them. And this 2010 uh, study in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease points out that invalidating childhood environments put youth at risk for non-suicidal self-injurious behavior. So these things are definitely overlapping, whether there's a definite Genetic link, we're not sure yet. Yeah, there might be, probably is, an interaction between the nature and nurture there because it's often accompanied with anxiety disorders, depression, oppositional defiant disorder. Um, And when it comes down to the actual self-harm behaviors, while um, girls are more likely to engage in it, the specific behaviors um, are different a lot of times between boys and girls, which might be one of the reasons why uh, the statistics indicate that, that girls... It might actually be artificially inflated in a way um, because according to the journal Pediatrics, that June 2011 study that I referenced earlier, um, girls are more likely to report cutting and carving uh, behavior, whereas boys reported hitting themselves more often. And um, because of that, it might not be um, as apparent that self-harm is going on. And not only is the behavior itself different, but the motives are different. Uh, a 2005 study in Psychiatric Times found that uh, females who self-harm are more likely than males to explain it by saying that they wanted to punish themselves. They're also more likely to say that they were trying to get relief from a terrible state of mind. And so they point out that depression and anxiety are much more noticeably associated with Girls, whereas males have typically received far less attention for this. Yeah, and um, when it comes to how this behavior starts, um, you know, we've we've ticked off all of these risk factors, but sometimes it's also something that seems to a behavior that happens without almost without someone even meaning to. Um, over at Exo Jane, blogger S. E. Smith talks about her experience as um, a cutter and as uh, she's uh, I should say used to be a cutter. Um, she said, I started cutting largely by accident. I have trouble remembering what the catalyst was, but there was a moment when I realized that there was something, one thing in my life that I could control. I could creep off into the corners and darkness and master something in my environment. It started quietly and it got bigger and bigger over time as these things often do. And that is such a good point that she makes um, because uh, according to research out of Cornell University, among respondents in a two- college study, one in five students who had engaged in self-harm indicated that they had hurt themselves more than they intended to. 
it's like once it starts, it becomes an addictive cycle. Mm-hmm. And we should point out that not all uh, of these experiences do become addictive. Um, if you have borderline personality disorder, a lot of times it will continue to get worse and or carry over as you get older. But according to psychiatrist uh, Niall Boyce, 90% of these self-injury cases do resolve on their own as the boys and girls get older. Yeah, and a lot of times the, that window is within about five years. And um, also referencing that Lancet study, uh, they noticed that the proportion of the participants who reported self-injury declined with age. But at the same time, obviously we can't brush this off and say, well... Yeah, just just let it go. It'll this get will, better. This will resolve on its own. Um, for instance, this is also the third most common form of adolescent suicide. And behaviors may crop up again, even if it goes away for a while. That's one thing that S.E. Smith over at ExoJane talks about. Uh, she says that you know she has not cut herself in a very long time, but she would be lying if she said she never thought about it mm-hmm. and is scared that at some point it might happen again uh, because it does become such a strong uh, coping mechanism right. a lot of times. And there's also the potential danger that comes along with um, inf- infection mm-hmm. and infection that could possibly lead to unintentional death. And one other uh, potential complication for this really is worsening feelings of guilt or shame. Um, a lot of people who have reported their self-injury talk about how it is a coping mechanism. There, It brings relief, um, but it's usually followed by feelings of guilt or shame. And so there is this link to suicide. This Cornell study that Krista mentioned earlier cites studies that show uh, people who engage in this behavior are nine times more likely to report suicide attempts and seven times more likely to report a suicide gesture. Yeah, and um, in, in addition to these concerns about um, the underlying be- roots of the behavior, such as psychological issues or prior trauma or inability to, to cope um, with emotions, um, researchers are also concerned with how this behavior might be spreading mm-hmm. as well. Um, there's concern that it has a contagious effect among peer groups especially because it tends to affect um, younger groups as we talk, as we've talked about that 12 to 15 year old window and there have been um, studies examining whether or not it's something that actually spreads by kids talking about it and it being something that that they do as uh, almost together I mean obviously it's a private thing but as a still a form of bonding. Yeah, I mean, I, we've talked about, and this isn't exactly the same thing, but we've talked about on the podcast before, like, if your social group is doing something, whatever that something is, it normalizes the behavior in your mind. So if a couple of people you know at school are doing this, it might seem more normal and you might be more willing to experiment with it. Yeah, and clinicians have also been concerned over uh, the rise of like self-harm videos that are on YouTube yeah. um, and also talking about it on social media. It's just, it's in um, the, our conversation more often than it used to be and getting that attention in a negative way, might be compelling more kids to to do this as a cry for help. Right, but a lot of people will point out, a lot of people who have uh, gone through this will point out that 
Yes, a lot of people say that, well, that's just a cry for help. She needs therapy. She wants attention from her parents. But there is a large portion of this population who say, you know, I was going off into, you know, my bedroom and doing this. Like, I didn't want anybody to know about it. This was for me to feel better. And so... I guess, you know, it's obviously unique to to everybody, but it it definitely isn't necessarily a cry for help or a cry for attention. Right. But nevertheless, what do you do when you, um, you know, if you if you discover that a friend is hurting themselves on purpose? Well, you shouldn't keep it to yourself. No, no. Um, That's you should try to talk to your friend if possible, but be non-judgmental and non-threatening about it. You know, don't get up in anybody's face who might be in a fragile condition and be like, you know, you really need to cut this out. This is really bad for you. You have to try to be sympathetic to your friend and let them know that you're very concerned for their safety. Right. And one thing that you could do to help them is um, help them seek out resources, therapists, helpful adults, someone who could help resolve this kind of behavior. And there are also organizations out there such as SAFE Alternatives, which stands for Self-Abuse Finally Ends, uh, which you can find at selfinjury.com. Um, and there, there's also the Self-Injury Foundation, Mental Health America, and also, as we've referenced before, the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injurious Behavior, which is more, uh, takes more of a clinical approach, but it still has a lot of information for what to do and how to cope. Or if you uh, are finding yourself doing this, uh, you know, seek out the resources. There is a lot out there mm-hmm. and a lot of ways to cope. And um, one thing we haven't talked about much is treatment for it. There is no medication that's just going to take this behavior away. Sometimes antidepressants will be prescribed probably if there, if the doctor finds out that there is um, anxiety or clinical depression going on with that. Uh, but a lot of it revolves around psychotherapy. Right, because oftentimes there are those underlying um, conditions that people are dealing with that might have driven them in the first place to experimenting with this behavior. So, you know, going to psychotherapy to learn healthier coping mechanisms, uh, learn how to communicate and express emotions, basically undo all of those, well, not undo, but try to get to the root of all of those behaviors that you started in the first place. You know, why Why are you having trouble expressing emotions or why do you feel like you need this release? Right. And that's actually how um, S.E. Smith, the, the blogger that we referenced, was able to stop that behavior was that she finally got to a point. She knew that some people knew what was going on and no one ever said anything to her and um, which she wishes that someone had uh, but she finally got to a point where she had to talk to a therapist and gradually it establishes accountability mm-hmm. as well of setting up a like signpost in a way of saying okay you don't engage in this for a week don't you know almost weaning yourself off of this behavior and learning how to channel that, all of that emotional energy into something healthier and safer. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like in a way we've only thrown out tons of statistics, but it is such a complex behavior. Um, you know, I hope that we were able to offer an overview of of what it is, and also um, a word of hope out there for people who might be dealing with this or know people who are dealing with this, that there is hope for recovery and treatments out there to to help people get better mm-hmm. and not and not hurt themselves. Exactly. So if you would like to 
write to us about um, cutting, self-mutilation, self-harm. We would love to hear from you. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. If you're looking for advice or resources, we will do our best to point you in the right direction. Um, again, I recommend heading over to selfinjury.com. Um, it seems like that's a, uh, a good go-to if you're looking for more information on this kind of behavior. Uh, and in the meantime, we do have a couple of listener letters to share. And this is both in relation to our episode on clothing donations. And this first one comes from Karen. And she works at a domestic violence shelter. uh, And they take in a lot of clothing donations. But she talks about how a lot of times they can't keep much of uh, many of the clothes that are donated because they are in such poor condition. So she offers a few tips for listeners who are planning on donating items. Tip one, when collecting items to give to donate, stop and put yourself in the recipient's position. Ask yourself if the item would be something you would enjoy if you were in their shoes. Tip two, call or email the charity and ask them if they need the items. You can also ask if there is a local thrift store that they partner with where you can donate it. And do this before you go drop off your items so you don't lug things around. It will save you you and the agency time. That's also a great time to ask if there's anything needed on their wish list. Those items can be small like toothbrushes or shampoo and make a big impact. And tip three, do not be offended if a charity won't take the item. There typically are so many factors in accepting donations. If you're still looking for a good home for an item and you live in the U.S., give 211 a call. It's a toll-free number like 911 or 411 that connects people who need help or want to help. So thanks for those suggestions, Karen. Okay, this one's from Callie, also about our donated clothing episode. And she has two suggestions for people. She says, one is an organization called Dress for Success, which receives professional clothing and gives it to low-income women looking for work. Each Dress for Success client receives one suit when she has a job interview and can return for a second suit or separates when she finds work. Participants also receive help in the job search process to prepare for interviews and develop their resumes. Another organization is called Ever After, which is a nonprofit that provides young women with new and gently used formal gowns, shoes, and accessories to be worn to their high school prom. Guests are pre-selected by their high school guidance counselors based on financial need, and the items they choose are theirs to keep forever, free of charge. And she provides two websites. First is for Dress for Success, which is dressforsuccess.org. The second is everaftergowns.org. So thanks for that info, Callie. Yes, and thanks to everyone who has written in momstuffadiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook, leave us a comment or message there, and you can follow us on Twitter, at momstuffpodcast. And if you'd like to feed your brain during the week, you can head over to our website, it's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?